This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today I'm talking to Anders Dunker about a book that he's edited called Rediscovering Earth, 10 Dialogues on the Future of Nature, a series of conversations with Anders with some of the most really brilliant people alive today writing who think and write and work in ecology, environmental change, climate change. How are you, Anders? Oh, I'm good. So this is a really interesting collection of conversations. It gives you, I think, you know, even if you've read widely, this gives, I think, an introduction to a lot of people that I think people, that, especially in America, I would think some of these people are not as well known here. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what prompted you to gather these thinkers together to talk about today how we approach climate change in a positive hopeful way right yes so uh obviously these are sort of uh some of my most preferred people that i wanted to talk to and i i was lucky enough to reach most of the people i wanted to talk to some were too busy but um i had some ideas about who to choose and uh part of the project of the book is sort of to transmit the more philosophical sides of um ecological and environmental questions to a larger audience. So I wanted to take people that were from academia and that had sort of uh, their own distinctive projects, but who were really good communicators. And um, and that's something I really appreciate when, when people are not only write well, but also speak well, and uh, they have the capacity to sort of uh, be engaging with the audience and to be uh, also transmitting some some emotional qualities uh, and some, some some passion for their work um, in a in a way that m- sort of mobilizes uh, listeners and readers. So so those qualities uh, was something I looked for and something I really appreciate. And uh, besides that, I wanted to ideally get people from different continents uh, to make this a global thing. Obviously, all the interviews are done in English, uh, and the Anglophone world is sort of dominating uh, the public uh, sphere of our world. But, uh, but at least there are some names in here from India. There's, uh, there's uh, a researcher, a biologist from South America and so forth. So that was something I wanted. And uh, apart from that, I wanted to avoid people who are overly pessimistic, I guess, uh, I wanted it to have a, a sort of a hopeful tone, but I wanted to push the realism in the perspectives as far as possible towards uh, worst case scenarios, because I think that's also very important to to have someone that is to have a perspective where you really uh, try to take in something that's really too too immense, too too threatening, and too enormous to to take in all at once. So this whole project was uh, also partly me trying to take in um, all these incredibly complex and threatening situations that we are thrown into in the Anthropocene. Yeah, I think in a way that is, you know, maybe, at least for me, kind of one of the core questions. And, you know, and you in the book, you know, I think you try to address this kind of idea and that is what is it that will get people to make change 
when we are so plainly threatened by the results of not changing and by the scale of the impact that human society, human activity has made on the planet. You know, it, in some ways, that's the, the core question. What will it take to get real change to occur? Because it's so obviously needed and has been so obviously needed for so long. And yet we are all capable of inaction. Um, mm -hmm. To such a you know to such a degree that it it you know at times it feels like inevitable that we will not succeed in making the changes that we need to make. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, this is a um, it's kind of an unprecedented situation in so many ways. Uh, we are, of course, as individuals, we're used to sometimes finding ourselves in situations that are that force us to action that forces to make a choice. And that's, to me, that's the essence of what a situation is. It's, uh, it's a constellation of events where even not doing something will have uh, big consequences. <laughs> so that's, that's where we find ourselves. And um, I think on a collective level, our project until now, as for instance, Bruno Latour, uh, who's the first person I interview in the book, as he remarks, uh, our project has been progress, which is very different. Um, because progress is something you make step by step. And uh, it's something that you take on voluntarily and you take on some challenges when you feel ready, when you feel you have the means uh, or when you you feel compelled for other reasons, also moral reasons. But with climate change and with uh, the environmental destruction that we see in our day, um, there is uh, really no choice not to take it on. So, so we find ourselves in this situation of being in, um, of being in a position where we need to do make a lot of changes that are incredibly complex and we need to understand the situation we're in. So so I think in one sense, uh, if we are confused and if we are paralyzed and if we don't make the changes, it's, it's very understandable. <laughs> you could even say it's, uh, it's something that could be excused. It's an extreme situation we're thrown into. So, so I think it's healthy to look upon this as a challenge that we, we first have to take in and uh, it, this being difficult doesn't excuse inaction, but we're definitely allowed to be uh, confused and to be staggered by, by all these things that are going on and all these changes that we need to make. And um, also our powerlessness relatively as individuals. I know it's sort of, it's the interesting um paradox is that it's our actions collectively that get us where we are and yet we don't have a method of taking those actions collectively to change direction um you know because it's the action the collective actions are the sum of so many small uh, uh engagements that become much larger when they're contextualized but uh uh, they don't, ha it's not like they have a will of their own. Um, you know, they're, it's, you know, you kind of see the ebb and flow of human behavior, but harnessing human behavior on a scale 
of this magnitude has never been done. And it becomes, and that's kind of what you're talking about, how we're in a place uh, humanity has never been uh, before, that the species has never experienced the effects um, on this mass scale of its behavior. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think, I mean, if you see the whole Anthropocene, if we want to use that word, which sort of designates the geological e- epoch where human action actually directly affects the Earth's systems, if you see the Anthropocene as an event, it's, an, it's, it's a different kind of event than uh, cause-effect as we see it in an incident. As, as Bill McKibben says in our conversation, it's easy to imagine this destruction of the world through a nuclear war. You have some nuclear bombs going off and it, it changes everything. But all those little explosions in the pistons of engines in cars, like billions and billions a second, that's what really makes the change. Um, and it's the same with individual action, like... Um, Chakrabarti describes in India, his home country, where people buy AC um, equipment to to cool down their houses, especially as um, the temperature rises and as uh, cities become sort of... uh, Yeah, which has the the effect of increasing the, the problem. Exactly. So they're in this loop, but as individuals, they just try to, you know, uh, secure a good night's sleep so they can do their exams and maybe improve their lives. And it's very understandable uh, actions as individuals. But collectively, yeah, it needs to be regulated. So so there are these negotiations, for instance, over AC um, machinery and how you're trying to sort of um, make a regulation so that you, you, you ensure that the consumers buy the equipment that is less damaging to the environment. But that is expensive. So, of course, then India tries to negotiate their way out of those restrictions because it gets in the way of them prospering and and growing their economy and so forth. And so all of a sudden it's a collective decision, but it's still on behalf of all those people. So so Chakrabarti's perspective is that, yeah, you you could sort of see all this in the classical um, vantage point of critique of capitalism, uh, for instance, and say capitalism is the problem, overconsumption is the problem. Well, that's only partly true because uh, quite ordinary consumption is also a big problem. And it's not fair that it's a problem, especially for people in poor countries, but still it is. So this is a very hard situation to deal with. Well, in some ways, this harkens, you know, it's so interesting to think about the evolution of our understanding of um, the particulars of the of, of what's going on if you think back to the Paul Ehrlich you know talking about overpopulation was kind of dismissed by a lot of people but you know in some ways it, it is true that regardless of the economic system unless the system is a sustain more sustainable there's no such thing as a zero output system but if if the system that all of the kind of sum of economic behavior of humans could be more sustainable rather than extractive, it would still be faced with um, tensions caused by the number of people that are on the planet. 
that that mm. we're kind of the victim of our own success as a species because we are really good at propagating. And it, you know, it's almost like the other kind of unintended consequence of um, the you know the advances in uh, medical care uh, extend the lifespan of humans, which creates more uh, use of natural resources, which abets the you know abets the climate the climate crisis by uh, utilizing more resources and creating more waste. Right. Yeah. So I mean. Uh, there's there's a very good reason why the, the question of population has become kind of taboo because it was uh, promoted uh, a lot by Ehrlich and by Club of Rome uh, and so forth. And it had a backlash in the sense that um, this was called Malthusianism. And Malthus, of course, was uh, an inspiration to Darwin. Uh, and uh, he was concerned with uh, exponential population growth and uh, mathematically uh, you would very easily get to a point where uh, the population grows more than the capacity of production can can possibly grow because of natural restraints so the idea was that uh, if the population keeps growing then you're practically doomed and even Malthus himself said we should build our hospitals in in swamps where mosquitoes can give people malaria we should we should take care that that it, things are not you know too sanitary that things are not too safe horrible perspective so all of this was criticized as being anti-humanist and so so uh, some environmentalists were sort of outed as uh, anti-humanist and uh, and were seen as sort of gruesome a gruesome perspective on uh, on the value of human life and so forth, and this sort of kind of stuck with um, with with the environmental movement in some people's perspective, um, and so to avoid such charges, uh, people tend to focus on overconsumption uh, in the global north instead of overpopulation, so-called overpopulation in the global south. Um, so I think that's that's kind of is a good strategy, and I think it's also very much true that it's uh, overconsumption in the global north, and the the example we set uh, with our lifestyle that is then emulated in the rest of the world. Uh, that's where the problem lies more than how many kids people have. But on the other hand, obviously, if we were half a billion people, we wouldn't have any of these problems. Um, but that doesn't mean. The solution is to get rid of most of humanity. So, <laughs> well, it may not be our solution, but it may be the planet's solution. You know, there is that you know version of. I mean, there is a sort of contrary view. I, I there's a book I, I'm familiar. You know, I actually published this book called "The New Reality" by Jonas Salk and Jonathan Salk, where mm. um, about written about forty years ago and recently reissued, which. Um, posits that basically a systems theory of biology and predicted that uh, population growth would not be um, uh, exponential and would eventually um, of its own um, for systemic reasons um, level off and that you know and if you look at the population numbers now there's some evidence that they were actually correct and that um, it may not be that uh, we have to worry about unfettered population explosion but in fact can focus more on 
consumption issues um, and systemic uh, change to our economic system to make it viable, you know, to make it a system that is not so damaging and so extractive um, that it uh, destroys the, the, uh, the grounds upon which we live. Exactly. And I mean, this also, this has to do with knowledge and this has to do with um, what kind of people live in this world. And um, uh, of course, there there is sort of not a full exponentiality, but there is um, an explosive potential in every every kind of uh, population growth. But uh, as Paul Hawking lists in his book Drawdown, where he goes through a lot of different solutions or part solutions to climate change, uh, educating girls, for instance, is one of the top solutions. Uh, and the reason for that is that when girls get educated, they they choose a different kind of family life and, and you change the patterns of family structures and, um, and uh, population doesn't rise as rapidly. So if you then think that, okay, and you also educate those girls uh, to take care of their, um, their local environment or to do agriculture in a more um, stimulating and uh, sort of eco-friendly way, then it's a, it's a double win. Yeah, I actually think that a female-centric agriculture would probably be a lot more effective than the um, slash and burn that men prefer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this actually exists. It does exist. So Vandana Shiva is uh, giving a very good um, part in the book. She um, she educates women, not in anything new or fancy, but in just reviving and, and holding on to traditions that are already there of uh, preserving seeds, of having a variety of seeds for different sort of changing climate conditions of uh, sort of the smallholder life. And she's an agroecologist. And I think agroecology is like, it's probably the best plan we have in so many respects uh, because it also means resisting globalization. It means resisting the big uh, international corporations that are sort of taking over and hijacking not only agriculture, but the economy in general. So um so what is happening is that the whole food system is kind of it's already quite broken and it's and it's getting worse in general so so the way that we produce food everything from factory farming to um sort of uh monocultures that are harvested by sort of uh, machines uh on an enormous scale producing and overproducing food that creates dumping prices uh, that makes it impossible for poorer farmers, smallholders uh, in other parts of the world and in, in the affluent world to even compete. All these things <laughs> contribute to, um, to environmental destruction. And on top of that, you have, uh, uh, you have GMO manipulated crops and you have uh, insecticides and uh, poisons that create all kinds of vicious circles. So she's pointing out all these things and how they are interconnected and uh, how they can not be solved right away, but how there is a different way of going about it that already exists and that 
can be revived and that can be spread and we can have this sort of rediscovery of knowledge that is being lost through modernization. So modernization has a lot of benefits, but it also destroys local knowledge systems. It makes people incapable of uh, taking care of themselves and, and in creating an alternative for themselves. Yeah, I was I was really impressed with that. I mean, there are a number of pieces that I I really found inspiring, and I thought, you know, I enjoyed um, being uh, uh, faced with a different methodology, a different thought process, and and different experiences. You know, of all the different people in the book, they all have unique perspectives. Uh, but I really, I was in fact really impressed with uh, Vandana Shiva and the the discussion of agroecology, which is something that I think as you said, has a lot of potential, but requires uh, real vigilance, I think, on our part to defend small-scale um, agriculture, wherever it is, and preserve seeds, preserve local methods of crop uh, growing, and not allow this sort of, uh, the, as you said, the globalization pattern, which kind of centralizes and specializes uh, regions or countries to do it one thing and others to do another. It's a kind of artificial uh, structuralization that um, may be unintended, but has it has some really negative, hugely negative effects. Right. So there are things that are visible only on a local level. One of the interviews I've done that did not make it to the book because I made it just as I was finishing the book was with uh, Judith Shapiro and Yifei Li talking about China. And one of the references was a book called Seeing Like a State. And what Shapiro was trying to describe is ever since uh, the time of Mao, reforms have been done on such a big scale and with such an insensitive an insensitivity to uh, people's actual experiences and to the local level needs that even with good intentions, you you risk damaging both local communities and uh, local ecology uh, extreme to an extreme degree. There needs to be some way of going about this where the local level and um, top level politics sort of talk to each other in, in a different way. Can you give examples of where that's happening um, at this point? Yeah, I think um, it does happen in every successful development project uh, there is. Uh, so this is, I mean, it is part of the methodology of any kind of um, sort of second, third generation uh, wise aid to, to developing nations, for instance. I mean, what they do, what they would do in, in the 60s or 70s was, was just modernizing and bringing in all the Western approaches and all the Western machinery and sort of, um, sort of making them like us. Um, I think now the approach is completely different. It's trying to, trying to see which are the crops that are traditionally grown, what are the social structures that sustain the farming, uh, you know, what knowledge is needed to modernize in a way that is, is healthy uh, for the local communities, for the local ecology. So I think 
I think this happens uh, in many places where it maybe does not happen is in the affluent West, <laughs> in, in a country like the US, where, where Bill Gates is buying up uh, a lot of private land uh, to make his own decisions and probably with good intentions uh, to sort of transition our farming into the next next level um, uh, maybe he will do good things, but there's also a chance that ownership um, on such a level will will sort of wreak havoc uh, in the sense that there is no there is no sensitivity to to feedback and there is no no social structure around it. So I think um, I think learning from learning from the part of the world that we have been teaching to uh that is sort of a, a humbling a humbling turn but i think that's in part that's what needs to happen uh that we need to learn from smallholders in in himalaya uh instead of going there to teach them how to do things <laughs> yeah, well that's yeah although maybe uh, I, maybe that's instead of Maybe it's not there. I guess maybe I don't know whether this is going to make sense, but it may not be their responsibility to teach us. It may be our responsibility to learn from them. Exactly. And maybe that's the challenge for the West, which is to look inward. You know, I, I you kind of hear this in conversations about um, uh, white supremacy and and in systemic racism that it's not black people's responsibility to teach white people <laughs> how to how to be um how to not be racist it's really about white people looking at their own beings and and taking responsibility and learning the history and being able to understand um ourselves rather than asking someone else to carry that burden for us and i think that probably applies to um the no, or, you know, the the challenge to ourselves to learn how to better um, relate to nature, how to um, not try to dominate it, how to listen to nature, and and try to understand it, and not as a simple thing because nature that word itself is ridiculous. It's it's not like there is a single thing called nature. It's the you know we as our it's the perception of our our surroundings, whatever that might be called. I I keep. I still think that you know the language that we use seems to be wrong in in um, in helping us understand the actual uh, experience that we that we need to have. It's almost like we need a new language um, mm. to break the habit of seeing nature as other than ourselves. You know, nature as some big entity. You know, it's like thinking about God um, as an entity rather than as being or. Uh, uh, force uh, in some way, you know, that we we tend to um, project ourselves onto our environment instead of allowing the environment to project onto us. Yeah, and I mean, um, the question of the term nature is sort of, um, is kind of an important part of the book. Uh, and the title reads, uh, 10 Dialogues on the Future of Nature. Um, which is uh, perhaps also the question of what is the future of our conception of nature. And um, nature 
in the old way of thinking is uh, an entity that shouldn't have a future because it was thought of as timeless. So there's something frightening in the very idea that the future of nature is a concern, uh, which is ob obviously is in, in our time because, um, because of the sixth extinction and because of um, our impact on the Earth systems. And then, then comes the question of post-nature or if we're sort of moving beyond nature because everything is affected by humans. Um, which to me is a very is a very disturbing concept, um, and it's obviously true that in some sense uh, it's very hard to find undisturbed nature. And in one sense, we what we have to learn is that there is no division between us and nature. But on the other hand, um, nature, the way we used to understand it, was something that was uh, in some kind of internal balance even if that balance was maybe exaggerated and maybe it's more in, unstable than we like to think, uh, there was something, I would like to say, autonomous um, in the sense that it wouldn't need our help to sustain itself. It wouldn't need us to be those stewards of nature, stewards of the earth that we like to talk about. Uh, it wouldn't need us. So we're in we're in a situation now where nature sort of needs us, uh, but in an entirely negative way. It's not like we can improve nature. We can just try to stop destroying it. Yeah, <laughs> no, that, I think that's actually a really important perception and a good way of thinking about what we're faced with. I think recently there was reporting that there are microplastics in the Himalayas. There are microplastics in the Antarctic, you know, that, that, and in the oceans at the, you know, at every point we have essentially the human world has invaded every element of the natural world, whatever, if, if there is a distinction still to be made. So you're right. And I think also that that has to do with the, uh, our sense of powerlessness and powerfulness at the same time. The idea of nature was that it was bigger than any of us and was so big that we couldn't unbalance it, that it would accept all of our efforts and would, you know, like taking a punch would just not be noticed. It was too big to be affected by the small human beings. And now we, now we realize after hundreds of years that that's not true. That's right. I mean, it's changed uh, enormously. And I, I sometimes misremember quotes, but I seem to remember that I once read in one of Walt Whitman's poems, um, his praising of nature as being so vast and so strong that you could even pour poison in a river and it would just heal right. because it was so sovereign in its powers to sort of, you know, uh, and I never found that quote again, but I, <laughs> but even if it's just in my mind, I think, uh, I think this is how we thought about it. And obviously we did, but on the other hand, there's a, there is a counter narrative to that, uh, which is, um, if you go back to the historical records of, um, from the industrial revolution onwards, at least there was a lot of concern about environmental destruction. 
uh, even in the 17 or 1800s at least. Um, and uh, what people would see was the destruction of forests. They would they would uh, be concerned that uh, coal mines, of course, were polluting. This was an enormous problem, uh, but it was on a local level. But people started to see that overfishing could be a problem. Um, people that arrived in America would see this abundance of wild nature everywhere. And a hundred years later, a lot of it was wiped out. And it's not like there was nothing there anymore, but it was just not this rich, abundant nature that used to be. Um, and that these, these processes of deterioration could go pretty fast. Uh, so I think there are a couple of French thinkers, um, Jean-Baptiste uh, Fresseau especially, uh, has been making this argument that is kind of hypocritical to say that we're so shocked now to discover that we are ruining the environment and, and sort of uh, pushing the earth to its limits because this has been a calculated risk in the whole product of modernity. We have sort of seen that to achieve our goals, we have to, you know, make compromises, we build dams, we do this, we do that, and there's always a cost. But this cost has been thought of as something we could afford. And now we're realizing that we can't afford it at all. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. the constellation has changed. And I think with the microplastics in the Himalayas, with, uh, with all these sort of more subtle uh, effects of our sort of uh, aggregated activity over the years, we will now see um, a new constellation also when it comes to selection and natural selection. So, so we're already seeing that for many species and many individual animals, surviving in our era means um, surviving Homo sapiens. It's not like you just survive the pressures of nature or the temperature or the predators. It's, it's are you compatible with Homo sapiens? And the, the big question then, of course, is, is Homo sapiens compatible with the planet as such? And, uh, and some of the more pessimist thinkers that I did not interview, like uh, <laughs> Derek Jansen, he says, obviously not. Right. Industrial civilization is not compatible with our planet at all. And, uh, and all of those who are optimistically saying that we will just change our technologies and so forth, they sort of disregard this, uh, this gross uh, in, um, incompatibility because um, there are resources that are just finite and there, is, uh, <laughs> there are all sorts of accumulating effects. And I'm, these days I'm working on an essay on the long future, like a thousand years ahead. And I'm trying to sort of, all the time I'm trying to think uh, and ask very simple questions. Um, and one of them that really troubles me is like, over my 40, something years of life, I've owned so many phones, like 10 phones. I've owned like 10 computers. Most people own like three or four or five cars. And it seems normal to us. But that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of resources. That's a lot of waste. And you can think that going on for 50 years, you can think that maybe going on for 100 years, but for a thousand years, and it starts, starts looking really, really monstrous and, uh, and very hard to believe in. So I'm wondering uh, if our way of living, I mean, how radically would it have to change? 
in order to be sustainable? And is it achievable at all to have an industrial revolution as we know it that is actually sustainable in the long run? And um, to me, this is what we have to figure out. And this enormous task. Yeah. And I think there are two, I, well, there are at least two different outlooks on that. Uh, simplistically, one is that, no, it's not possible, as Derek Jensen says, it's not possible to to be sustainable at this level of industrial development. And then the other way of looking at it is, and not necessarily the people who think that we'll technologize our way out of it, but more that uh, humans are uh, uh, fast adapters and will adapt, um, which I think maybe neglects some <laughs> elements of uh, you know other factors than our own. I, I think there's still we have to get away from the human centric view of all all of of the world essentially uh, in order to be able to imagine another future because in, if you can't imagine it you won't be able to do it and if you can't believe in it um, then nothing will change exactly so that's also why i'm fascinated with kim stanley robinson who constantly uh does thought experiments in his science fiction books and his latest book that is mentioned in in my book uh the ministry for the future he tries to imagine like the first steps towards at least the point where uh, our carbon emissions go down and we seem to be on the right path. Uh, and along the way, there are sort of schemes for rewilding, for instance, which is super exciting. Uh, the idea that you can sort of turn the tide of destruction of nature, um, at least in some places, that it's not just a one-way process where everything gets more and more fragmented, more and more destroyed, Some that some areas can sort of be recuperated. Um, so you need to have an idea of where you're headed for. And um, and I think there are some things we can really figure out. So um, we can do something about illegal wildlife trade that is becoming an enormous problem. They talk about whole areas being defaunated. So like all the fauna is just gone because someone is uh, willing to pay for it as a product as uh, trophies or as uh, food or whatever. Um, and this is this is very hard to deal with because uh, environmental crime is sort of disregarded as, uh, as, uh, as a minor thing. Um, but this is something we could do something about. We could do something about factory farming, which is uh, incredibly destructive. And it's just food. Okay, some people think it's the best food or the good food or it's their food of choice, but still it's just food. Uh, and it's relatively easy to change your menu or your dietary intake. Uh, so that could be changed. I, and and um, and also habitats. We we can protect habitats. It's it's not that hard. So when it comes to the sixth extinction, I think there's lots of things we can do. When it comes to ch climate change, on the other hand, it's a very very tricky. It's almost like the perfect trap for industrialized humanity. Uh, there are so many things about it that makes it incredibly difficult. So I think um, I'm quite optimistic, given that we don't completely fail with climate change. I'm quite optimistic that we we are capable of figuring out how to protect nature better. Well, that's, I think, the perfect place for us to end. I, I want to end with an optimistic note. So thank you so much, Anders, for talking to me about 
Rediscovering Earth. I think it's a it's a great book for anyone who's even mildly interested in what climate change thinking is like today. I think for people who are experienced thinkers or readers, this will be an introduction to a large number of people they don't know about. So I think it's a terrific book. And thanks for talking to me about it today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. This has been uh, Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I've been talking to Anders Dunker, who has had conversations with 10 thinkers on the future of nature, and it's really a terrific book. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.